Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. Stephen, thanks for coming back again on the podcast. Uh, you've been here a couple of months ago and thought it was exceptional. I learned so much in our earlier podcast episodes and from the feedback that I got from listeners and viewers on YouTube, I think they share this sentiment. So last time we ended our discussion just in the last couple of minutes and we talked about your new book, which really zooms in on the role of patriotism. Patriotism as a virtue and the way it is maybe mystified in popular culture and common culture right now. So your book is out now, it's been published. Um, maybe you can tell us a little more what happened and the reactions you've got and what is actually in the book. Thank you, Karsten. It's a pl pleasure to be back with you. And I'm really grateful to have the chance to, to talk about the, the book on patriotism, re reclaiming patriotism in an age of extremes. It came out a couple of months ago. Uh, it's a subject I began thinking about when, when I was doing the introductory class that we spoke about, about last time. Uh, I began thinking about when I got to the end of the most difficult part of any class, like a, of a, in a book or a movie or a novel, it's, it's how to end it, you know, where it ends, always difficult. And uh, I began to think about the question, which is, not often raised as much as I think it should be. Well, what, what do people owe their country? How do they think about their own country? How does, how does the study of political philosophy actually connect to their feelings of responsibility or, or gratitude or, or resistance, for that matter, to, to the country where they live? It became a very kind of almost existential question. So I began thinking about patriotism, which I think is a very neglected virtue among the students of philosophy. Don't, don't think about patriotism very much as a virtue. We think of all kinds of other virtues. Uh, and yet loyalty to country or love of country is something that really does not get as the attention 
that, that I think it, it deserves by philosophers or political theorists. And especially in the light of, you know, this was the course began quite a, a while ago, but in the light of uh, what was then going on, the war in Iraq, the war on terror, all of these issues, I began to think about the question of patriotism, what it means, uh, and how I thought it needed to be reclaimed in some ways from both the right and the left. So that's that was sort of what got me going on this topic. Yeah, so when we when we think of patriotism, I think a lot of people think of the 6th of January uh, this year, what happened at the Capitol, and a lot of Trump supporters were called patriots. They, they, they called each other patriot, right? Are you a patriot? Are you with me? Are you a patriot? So I feel the word patriotism has gotten, and especially in the last two, three, four years, has gotten that meaning of almost like an extreme right symbol, right? So the idea is that we have to defend our nation state um, against, and, and something that, that emanates from within us. And that's how it is perceived in, in popular media, at least before I read the book. And when I read the book, and I think what, 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 what the, the tour that you gave me and the insight that you gave me by reading the book is that the idea of patriotism is relatively new also, right? So it isn't, it was talked about in Sparta and Athens, but it, besides that, it's a relatively new thing, but people think about it as a virtue. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up the January 6th event because it is exactly that view that I want to distinguish patriotism from. Uh, one of the claims that I make in the book is that patriotism and nationalism uh, which are often sort of lumped together and thought of together, and while they have some overlaps, really pull in very different directions. What we saw on January 6th was an upsurge of American nationalism. Uh, and nationalism feeds, I argue this at some length in the book, uh, it feeds on the distinction between friend and enemy, between us and them, those who are in and those who are out. And nationalism always is concerned or eventually becomes concerned with identifying enemies, whether those are foreign or domestic enemies, who do not fit what is usually regarded as the ethnic, dominant ethnic type of the nation the ethnos of the nation. Patriotism speaks a very different language, I argue. Um, it may grow out of a common concern with nationalism, which is to say the desire to have your way of life strong and respected. It's a natural and legitimate aspiration. But Patriotism is much more about feelings of loyalty and gratitude, especially gratitude, a kind of thankfulness for, for who we are and for our country, for helping to shape, shape who we are. And one of the things that distinguishes this most prominently and importantly from nationalism is that along with this sense of gratitude and loyalty that I argue patriotism uh, is central to patriotism. Is of course the flip side of that is a sense of shame when we feel our country has gone wrong, 
or has committed injustices of different kinds. This is a feeling that is not really relevant to nationalism. Uh, patriots are capable of, sh of sense of shame and of self-correction. Uh, one example I use in my book is when the United when the government um, recognized uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winners uh, generations later who had been overlooked because of their race. Uh, this is an act of what I would think of as in many ways patriotic self-correction. It is an attempt to enlarge the family, to enlarge the people who are recognized as part of the American family. It's not about shrinking the family to its, to its narrowest possible base, but it opens the door and allows people of many different types to, to join the family and be part, be part, be part of it. And I think that's, a, that's, that, that's why I want to distinguish patriotism from nationalism. They, they push in different directions, even though uh, the nationalist right uh, would prefer to, as it were, appropriate patriotism for their own purposes. I think it's a misuse of the term. The, the, the problem with patriotism seems to be, it's a bit like, it's mostly an emotion, and it seems to be very much bound to a nation state, which, when we look back, seems to be somewhat random in a lot of places in the world, maybe not so much in the U.S. and Europe, but even there we can make that argument that the, the actual borders and the origination is somewhat random. And the, the trouble, I think, what a lot of people feel is that when we think about patriotism, it seems like we, we attach some superiority, right? We, we, there is the famous national German hymn that says Deutschland über alles, which, which basically means Germany is superior to anyone else, which had its context um, in, in the 18th century, very different one that it got later in the Second World War and beyond. But what I think always people have trouble with patriotism is that, that it's, it's something you attach yourself to or not. It, it, there is no relative scale of patriotism, saying zero to 100, and you can't really change, you can't really build it, right? It is a virtue that you either have or not. It seems to be something people cannot build over time. They cannot, they cannot learn how to be a better patriot, or maybe they can. Uh, I think I disagree with that. I mean, one of the points I try to make in my book is that patriotism is a matter of education. It must be taught. Uh, it's not just there in our DNA. Uh, we don't inherit it. We're not, we're not patriots by nature. It, it is something that needs to be taught. Uh, and something that anything that can be taught can be, it can be taught well or it can be taught badly. And uh, what we've seen is a lot of the bad, bad uses of, of patriotism. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the question of superiority. Uh, in my reading of patriotism, I, one of the thing, one of the arguments I make is patriotism is one of the loyalty-enhancing virtues. Uh, we have loyalty to many different kinds of people and groups and institutions. We have loyalty to family. We have loyalty to teams. We have loyalty to institutions that we are a part of. We have loyalty to country. This is just a web. We live in a web of, of, of loyalties. I mean, and in many ways, patriotism is an extension of loyalty to family. When I say I love my family or I'm loyal to my family, I don't, I don't mean by that my family's better than your family. My family's better than any other. I mean, what would that even mean? It's a, 
preposterous statement. Uh, for the most part, we, we, lo we love our families, you might say, despite their flaws. We are well aware of them, and, you know, despite that's what's going on. And I think love of country is, is much the same thing. It's not a desire to, uh, again, to, to say my country's better than yours, but it's, it, it is, a, again, a sense of gratitude. What's baked into patriotism, I think, is a sense of gratitude and loyalty. And, and those things need to be taught. Uh, and they're not being taught. Uh, they're not only not being taught, but they are being, you know, there are projects to, uh, to, to really reject any sense of patriotism as, as a loyalty. We are uh, among educated people. We're taught, we're citizens of the world today. We're no longer citizens of a country. Our, our problems are global problems. We have our, our, our loyalties contribute to global humanity and the very worst off. And if you live in a, you know, by and large, well-to-do country like the United States, you should say, well, why shouldn't my obligations then be to people who are much worse off than, than me, not, 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 not just the fellow citizens? And I think that's, that's the wrong way to, to look at, it's, it's exactly the wrong way to look at the world. Uh, it doesn't mean that we have to draw, create walls between us. But we do have obligations, and I think first-order obligations to fellow citizens first. Uh, I don't think it is a question of economic nationalism to say that we do better when we look after and attend, first of all, to the interests of, of American workers, of, of, of American workers. Uh, then we can look to the interests of, you know, others. Doesn't mean again we have no obligations to to people outside our borders, but we have we have obligations in the same way that we have obligations to our own families first, before we can think about what what good we can do for other people. We have obligations to our children, to our parents. Those come first, and uh, again, it's not a recipe for for building a, a a wall of separation around us, but it is a sense of a. a kind of structure of, of, of obligations and loyalties. And so I, I want to say that yes, we have we do have obligations to our own to our own fellow citizens first. But that's first. It doesn't mean only first doesn't doesn't mean only. Uh, just one one final thought on what you said. Yes, we we live in a world of nation states. So we live in a world of states. Uh, those states were in many ways arbitrarily created. I, I don't deny it. Uh, look, look at the United States. It has changed its, you know, shape and configuration many times over, you know, 250 years or so. Uh, no, no state is uh, written in, you know, there's no uh, algorithm for determining what the borders and you know boundaries of a state are, but I, I am a kind of uh, I begin my political theory. I begin from the I, I, call, I guess I would call myself a political realist. I begin from where we are. We live in the world of states. Those states have for centuries been the basis of political legitimacy and a certain kind of, of world political order. We accept this. I mean, the United Nations is, a, is again, it's a group of states. Uh, and and I, I do think we have to begin with accepting the 
state or the nation state is the basic unit of, of political legitimacy. Uh, are they, did, were they created in many ways accidentally? Did they come into purpose? Did they come into being for all kinds of contingent historical purposes? Yes, of course. Uh, but this is the world we, this is the world we inhabit. And I think it's the one that I want to, where, where my, where my analysis begins. Yeah. I had Sam, Simon Anhold on the show and he was arguing, well, we should just start our own country with like-minded people, people who see the world slightly differently, who might prioritize global issues much higher than local issues or issues that are really important to the politicians of the nation state. And every, every, every country is slightly different. Run. Some are more federal, some are less federal. Right? So the U.S. is probably a little less, but say France is like everything happens in Paris, everything Besides, that doesn't really matter so much. And I was curious, the debate about patriotism, maybe it illuminates a wider issue that I felt has kind of vexed a lot of us over the last 20, 30 years. And I think you, you will see that um, primarily when, when we talk about political philosophy and how states should be built. And the question is, a lot of assumptions from the founding fathers that we have let's take that example, America, are baked into the cake, so to speak. So we have certain allegiances to America. We have certain allegiances to the free market economy. We have certain allegiances to representative democracy. We have allegiances to how we think, how secular should this country be? How should it deal with other religions? And we kind of trace it back to the book, right? That the Constitution, instead of the Bible, we use a more secular document, the Constitution. But in the end, a lot of what we see in the Constitution, when we talk about human rights, those are things that come straight out of the Old Testament. What I've been thinking about is this, how much of the assumptions that we see in everyday life in the U.S., including the institutions, including how the government is being run, and even how most private individuals behave and what kind of morals they assume the other person on the other side also has and what kind of receptions they get if they talk to other people, for instance, how much of this is really consciously baked into the cake? So in my personal assumption, I always feel very little is consciously known about that. So we, we know certain parts of that equation. Some people are religious, um, some are not so religious, some are Christian, some are Muslim. But, but we, we, we seem to have this, this tearing apart of the United States. So I see what happens is that a lot of people are questioning why are so many assumptions baked into everyday life? And that's not just true in the US, it's everywhere in the world. But people are saying, well, is that actually a world that I, where my values are being propagated or is this the values of someone else and I just have to live in that world and my life has been made harder? And what if we push back on those values, if we just forget about the Constitution, right? That's a, it's a very, very popular saying these days. Why do we need the Constitution? We don't need to change it. We just forget about it. Is this new world that could be built, is it better, A? B, what do you think is... All these assumptions that are built into these nation states, has that been something that was kind of a manipulative attempt by the founding fathers and other founders of other nation states? Or was it kind of an accident? Was it just, just the, the best available system that was provided? But people who, who started these countries, who, who were, were foundational to these nation states, they didn't really know so much about these assumptions either. 
but it's a profound and far-ranging question about about uh, foundations of legitimacy of any of any political order. Uh, I mean, America. I don't want to say is unique in this sense, but we do have a constitutional tradition, a tradition of a written constitution. And ours was, I believe, the first, I mean, today written constitutions are, are, are common, the most common, but I think in the 18th century, I don't believe there were written constitutions before, before the US. Uh, America has always been uh, I term I use in the book. We've always been a people of the book in that respect. The Puritans, the Puritans came over thinking that they were going to create a new Jerusalem in the new world. And the Bible would be their text for doing this. Ex, the Book of Exodus, and creating a, a new a new political order with new laws, something like the ancient Hebrews in the Promised Land of New England. <clears throat> And even after Puritanism disappeared as a religious dispensation, I mean, the, the founding framers took over or retained this kind of textualist mentality, creating a written constitution, creating uh, political institutions like the court that would be responsible for interpreting those constitutional issues as they emerged. And we have created, you know, over 250 years or, or thereabouts, a textualist uh, understanding of, of sort of who we are as a people. Uh, you could say in, in some sort of theoretical way, well, why don't we just throw this aside, start from the beginning and let's see what works. And, you know, a lot of courses in political philosophy, it's fun to, begin with that idea, you know, here, let, let's play philosopher kings and start start our own city and speech. I mean, you might say that's what Plato does in the beginning of the Republic. Uh, I live, Plato seems to say, we live in this, in this democracy, this Athenian democracy, we don't like it all that much, it isn't, but let's, let's create our own city. Let's imagine what an ideal city would be like, and they spend an evening together uh, creating just just such a city. Uh, it's a fascinating thought experiment, and we can learn a great deal from similar kinds of experiments. But ultimately, uh, you know, we have to go back. At the end of the day, Socrates has to go back to Athens, the uh, dinner, the dinner party where he's at, uh, where they're having this conversation, is outside the city. It's in Piraeus, and the end of the dialogue eventually that they have to go back to Athens. And that's what I would say too, eventually we have to return to the world in which we live, which is uh, our world with our, with our constitution, our traditions, our laws. And I, I think it's very, it's very difficult to, um, at least in, in this country, maybe, I, I'm not gonna legislate for elsewhere, it's harder to, harder to say. But at least, at least in our in this country, it's it's. I, I think it's it's very difficult to uh, to break outside of our constitutional order. And, and I don't want to, frankly. I mean, I, I don't want to. We have all kinds of ideas for what we 
could do. I, I hear this from colleagues and other professors. We should do this. We should do that. Usually at the end of the day, I think Madison, James Madison and others tended to have the better, I, I think they tended to have the better arguments. Uh, so I, I I'm kind of always go back to where, where, where we started is, is, yeah. is, is the fundamental premise for, for doing political philosophy. Well, there is this part of postmodernism that tries to get to the bottom of these assumptions. So there, there is, it's almost like a, a bias, or do this has become a bad word, right? It's, it's something that we, we feel applies to a certain set of moral issues and moral problems. But it isn't completely done by a rational observer. And then the question, that's, that's what, 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 it, what it appears to be, right? It isn't fully rational, it's somewhat rational, but there is some other agenda maybe in the background. Maybe it isn't, right? But it's worth, worth looking into these things. Like That's what I said earlier with institutions and how the way daily life works. I have a little bit of this, this feeling, of, uh, I take this from, from Socrates, he was really upset with the problem that he felt 90% of the population wouldn't rise up to the level of his, his thinking. They wouldn't see the argument, they wouldn't see the light of day of his argument, right? because he either had the time to really um, interact with them, or they simply were too uninterested. So well, let's just run with this assumption, you probably have done this many times with your students, when we, we run with this assumption that, say, a certain percentage wants to create a better world, 10% of the population, 90% doesn't care, right? They just want their life. And I think this is for every nation state that seems to be the problem. Like, let's think back to the French Revolution. We, we see this 10% has thought about this as, as a lot of abstract solutions. They don't know if they work or not. They've, some of them have been tested during times before, some are completely new. And our, everybody wants to be a little progressive, right? Everyone wants to innovate a little bit. I'm an entrepreneur, I need to innovate all the time. And when we, when we combine these things together, we, we, we put in assumptions that we feel are for the common good. So everyone will be better off. But 90% of the population doesn't really care or doesn't want to care, doesn't have the time, struggles for survival. We just make assumptions for them so the, the common good is being served, but the individual might not be served so well. And that's what I'm trying to, to, to say is this bias. There's, there's a lot of assumptions that we kind of bake into these institutions. We say, okay, this is how we run this thing with or without a bias. Again, this is a bad word. I think it's probably not fitting so well. But then this kind of gets a life of its own. It's 50 years, 100 years later on. Is that something that nation builders have done? They tried to manipulate the outcome because they feel that the, the greater good, and I know this happened in socialism, the greater good is much more important than the 10% that basically had to go to the gulags or had to disappear to somewhere else because they simply were not allowed to, to just argue their way, argue their opinion, because that was too dangerous for the system, for the utopia. The utopia doesn't come alive, right? Lenin's utopia doesn't come alive if there's 20% of capitalists left, right? Because they exploit everyone else and they have unlimited profits. So they need, we need to get rid of them. And that's what he did, right? But is a similar thing, just not enforced by gulags, also happening in other countries? Well, I think what you've put your finger on is the danger that is sort of implicit in all political reformers. 
so many people that they, they genuinely want to make the world better. They have some ideas about what would make it better for the common good for most people. And some of those are, are very good ideas. And then they begin with what is a good idea. And eventually that becomes for them the only idea out there. And they begin to regard people who don't accept their views of reform or their, their ideas of the good society as enemies of progress, as reactionaries, as enemies of the people. And before you know it, right, you've created gulags, re-education camps, and other kinds of things to get rid of people who don't, who don't agree with you. That's in the extreme case, of course, obviously. But I think one of the things reformers have to learn is, you know, we, we live in an imperfect world. We live in, we live, there has to be some acceptance of human imperfection. Uh, the Federalist authors were deeply aware of this, that we, we, are, de we are fallible human beings. Uh, they often hold up the city of Plato as the rule by philosopher kings as an example of the kind of perfectionism that we can't achieve. And, you know, we have to, we have to settle, usually, for, we have to understand that politics is a matter not just of choosing the best, but of choosing the, the less of bad alternatives, if you, if you see what I'm getting at. Um, yep. The choices are rarely between good and evil. The choices are between lesser, lesser types of goods and lesser types of evil. And choosing the one that can do the most good under the circumstances or do the least evil under the circumstances. And I would, that's, that's how I tend to think about things. Uh, you know, the famous phrase that I think is sometimes attributed to Voltaire, I'm not sure, the, what is it, the, the, the best is the enemy of the good, I think, uh, something to that effect. Uh, and we can't allow ourselves to be, to be utterly bewitched by the ideal to the extent that we uh, overlook the fact that our, our ideals may, may also be imperfect as well. You know, I, uh, one, of the one, of the, one of the things I learned from the great political philosopher, Isaiah Berlin, is that the, the great ideals do not simply exist in, in kind of perfect harmony with one another. Our ideals clash. Uh, how much equality should we have? How much liberty should we have? Uh, should we, uh, how much, um, how much should we attend to the needs of the, of the, of the, of the least advantaged? How much should we attend to the pursuit of excellence? Uh, all of these are, are in conflict with one another. And we have to understand that politics is a matter of negotiating and, 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 and managing, managing conflict of, of goals and conflict of, of goods. But the idea of the good is really, uh, I think, a kind of false solution. It is always a question of competing goods, competing virtues, competing goods, and learning how to best learn to balance and adjust and moderate our, our idealism.
Stephen, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm fully with you. It's the example. What I'm, what I'm trying to, to put forward is a bit like computer code, right? So you write a lot of source code, and that source code is basically the algorithm. Like the European Union wants the, the, the whole European Union to run like an algorithm. There is, there is maybe a little bit of work that you, adjustments you need to do from a, from a human point of view, but generally it's an algorithm. And let's imagine someone writes most of this code and it's clean and it does what it's supposed to do and it, it works 99% correct. It's a big bureaucracy that works like an algorithm, but some people hide like a Trojan horse in there and they feel whenever there is this 0.1% where the, the normal algorithm doesn't really work, this Trojan horse takes over and steers it, say, all the way to the right, all the way to the left. So it's this edge case decisions that basically don't work on the normal algorithm because the algorithm doesn't really work so well in these edge cases, but the, a code takes over that wasn't planned for. So it should put it back to the humans, right? It should basically give a human intelligence, a human um, democracy. It should bounce it back to them so they can make a decision. But instead, this Trojan horse takes over and just makes it pretty far out of the, what's kind of the accepted normalcy um, case decision. And, a lot of people think a lot of our institutions are maybe that way, right? So there's a lot of assumptions baked into the cake that they feel they don't share. And so they feel the institutions need to go away. I think that's wrong, but I want to understand if this is maybe something that's true, because that's what a lot of postmodernists argue. The world was built this way because this was the best available tool at the time. But maybe it isn't the best available tool anymore. I mean, maybe it is. That's, that's obviously open for debate. I'm not, I mean, I, I guess my answer would be, well, okay, then not only show me the better one, show me the, bet, the, bet, the better model on which to go by, but show me how, how to get, how we should, more, just as importantly, show me how, to, how we should get there. It's not enough just to say, here's, here's, my, here's my model of the, the Constitution was created in the 18th century. It had dealt with problems, various problems that don't really exist any longer. It's not applicable to a, the kind of society in which we now live that the framers could hardly have imagined. Uh, what we need is a new Constitution. We need a better model. I say, fine, show me that model. But just as importantly, show me how, how we get there. How do we... Yeah. How do, how do we implement? How do we implement it? Um, you know, we have to live in a world where, once again, politics is not a is not quite. It's not simply a question of a seminar where the you know in a seminar we could say uh, here's if I can use a phrase from Habermas. Habermas says you know that. Uh, you know, the ideal, what he calls the ideal speech situation, his kind of model of society is the, what he calls the ideal speech situation, where the best argument wins. Well, that may be true in a seminar uh, where the best argument wins, but we all know in the world in which we inhabit, it's not just about having the best argument. Uh, it helps if you can have the best argument, 
but it's not always the case that the, the best argument simply wins. There are powerful interests, there are powerful passions, there are powerful forms of resistance to even it, to, to everything. So um, it's not just a matter of being able to prove that, you know, I have a better vision of the just society than you do, but it's a question of, okay, show me how your, how your vision of society can be institutionalized. How, how can it be implemented? And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a question that often philosophers don't want, don't want to go down. That's a road they, they're resistant to go down because they think, well, all, all we have to do is show the argument. And if I have the, if I have the best argument, that's, that's all I need to do. But in the real world, of course, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't bring you success necessarily. You just described my belief in democracy and meritocracy. Okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. One thing that you mentioned in your lectures, and I think he's dear to your heart is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? And he came up with a very interesting model, very different than, than Hobbes and Locke to an extent. And Smith, I think he based this on, 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 on similar worldviews where they said, well, the world is basically a lot of brutes. There's a lot of people who basically compete for resources and they struggle to stay alive. And, and Rousseau went out on an arc and said, well, that's not how he sees the world. It's people are good, right? People are born good. They come with intrinsic morals and society corrupts them. Mm -hmm. And it's something where, where he had a very different worldview. And I think a lot of people are rediscovering this when we talk about socialism, right? Where they feel there is, say, computer code is better than laws or computer algorithms are better to make decisions because they're less biased, right? That's kind of the theory they put forward. Um, I'm not, I don't think that, um, but that's, that's a very popular theory. It's a lot of what we've seen over the last couple of years are outbursts of socialism that, that, that seem to, when I read Rousseau, uh, parts of Rousseau, and then obviously when I listened to your lecture, I, I felt strangely reminded. I thought he, maybe he is the father of socialism. Well, I think there's, there's much in there. Uh, there is, I mean, there is uh, certainly Rousseau's powerful sense of egalitarianism. Can, can be seen as a forerunner of socialism is, I mean, obviously the other side of his egalitarianism is his passionate uh, denunciation of the ills of inequality. Uh, probably, probably even more than his support of equality, Rousseau is a, is a critic of inequality, and particularly not, not just, he's not, just concerned with the material dimensions of inequality, economic and wealth and economy. He's interested in the moral and psychological uh, consequences of inequality, attitudes of entitlement and domination on the part of the rich, uh, attitudes of servility and, and acquiescence on the, on, the, on the side of the poor. Uh, and Rousseau was a, an astute psychologist, as much as anything, uh, Rousseau was a, was a kind of moral psychologist of inequality, um, what he called, the, the, he's an, an analyst of the, the term he calls amor propre, it's 
sort of vanity, uh, which he found to be the domineering quality of, you know, modern society. So there's a lot in Rousseau you can, you can see as at the root of certain kinds of socialist theories and socialist, so, socialist theories, absolutely. I mean, there's much more in Rousseau than that. Uh, I mean, I, I could push back and say uh, Rousseau is himself, um, he, he did not, he, unlike Marx, for example, he did, he did not support the abolition of property. He, he believed in the importance of, of private property. Um, he, he was, if anything, also a, a kind of nationalist, too. He believed in the importance of nations, in creating a sense of national spiritedness. Uh, he created, he wrote constitutions for Poland and Corsica. Uh, obviously, the Swiss model was very important to him. Uh, he was a kind of egalitarian, a democrat. I think, I think in many ways more than socialist, democrat, uh, kind of a strong democrat is what defines Rousseau's political theory. He believes in the ability of people, of the, the people, to shape the laws, to give the laws to themselves that shapes their, their societies. He opposes uh, sort of representative government because he believes that it's the people who should determine their own laws, not not their representatives. And I, it's a powerful view, kind of direct democracy, probably only plausible in, in relatively small societies. He admitted that himself. He wasn't legislating for France or big big countries. Uh, but there is a there is a strong again egalitarian democratic and, and at the outside I would agree socialistic um, dimension to Rousseau. And I was curious, maybe this come, came up earlier in political philosophy, but Rousseau seems to be who put his finger on the wound the best. There seem to be these two worlds we live in. There is the one we know people we want to the family, right, where we want to separate resources in an equal manner. We want to be friends with everyone. We want to avoid conflict as much as possible. And then we, we as we fur go further outwards, where we have that, that the tribe, maybe a hundred people, um, that used to be the number seemingly that anthropologists put forward, where we know people, but we don't necessarily want to share everything equally with them, maybe to an extent, but not it, it definitely becomes less of a desire. And then as we go further out, we become more and more anonymous, right? Especially now we have these huge cities where we go along people and we, we don't recognize anyone ever, right? So you can go through, say, Hong Kong and even never see the same person twice in your life, even though you're in the same subway every single day. And all these people seem to matter less to us, right? So we, we, we fear that they that we compete with them, that we take, they take resources away from us. We don't have really have a trust model for them. We, we don't know we should trust them. We know they're human beings and they have similar interests we have. But as further we go out, I think from this, this hierarchy and as bigger these cities that we have become, these two mindsets, I think, which we so, so properly have incorporated in the U.S. as Democrats and Republicans, these two mindsets struggle at each other. And maybe they, they've been struggled, they should, they've always struggled, right? So this is probably not a new thing, but it's interesting that in most political theory, 
and I, I, I like Friedrich Hayek, who's more an economist, but I think he does a lot of work also for, for in, in terms of political theory. Mm -hmm. Most of what I've read, and again, this might be a bias, is, is really towards how do we establish enough freedom so people can prosper, which I think is absolutely elementary to make people their best. But on the other hand, there seems to be this, this, this social trait that we all have where we know we are part of the society and we know if the society does bad and it's, it's at some point not really based on merits anymore. It's based on luck. It's based on uh, your, your inheritance. We feel we, we, we need to change the equality picture. But that must be an age-old problem, right? So I, I think the Greeks must have the same problem. Uh, it, I believe you're right. That is, that is an age-old problem. Uh, how do we combine liberty, a society especially like ours that, that values liberty, maybe first of all, as the, as the first political word, but how do we balance that with a sense of uh, what I call in my book patriotism, a sense of belonging, a sense of being part of a national community of some kind uh, that, is, that, are, that is equally important. Uh, we are not simply, uh, I remember hearing one time, Mark, I, I didn't hear it, but I, I think a statement that was attributed to Margaret Thatcher, where she said, there's no such thing as society. They're just individuals uh, competing with one another for goods and services and, you know, in con contractual relations of some kind. That to me is kind of a Hayekian view of the world. There, there is no society. There are, there are just individuals. And the world, we should organize laws and institutions simply to maximize the freedom of choice of individuals. Uh, I, I don't really accept that view. I think it's, it's false to the psychology of, of who we are. I think we as individuals want, we have a need to belong. We have a feel, feeling of belongingness is important to us. We want to be members of a community, a, a national community, a local community. Uh, and, but the question is how to balance these, these competing goods. And I agree uh, that this is there. There is well to go back to a term you used earlier. There is no algorithm for determining this. Uh, some societies will uh, will uh, put their chips or more of their chips on the side of liberty. Uh, other societies will put them more on the side of equality. France, for example, take France for example. The two, if we take the U.S. and France, as the two great Republican experiments of the you know late 18th century. Uh, our understandings of Republicanism are different, are, are rather are rather different, and I think the French model moves in the direction of greater equality. The American model in the direction of great liberty. There's not an ideal inflection point in which we can say, you know, one side or another found the right, you know, the, the right key. It's, it's a question of judgment and practical experience, I think, and sort of what works for different people. 
But I think you, you put your finger, that, that, is, that is the issue that we struggle, continually struggle with. I mean, it's in a way, a little bit, the way the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Democrats want more equality, Republicans want more room for individual freedom. And, uh, you know, we, we, argue, we argue, and what's the result? We argue about those things. Sometimes the balance tips one way, sometimes the other way. The point, I think, is just to resist the extreme that says that, that it's all one thing or, or, all the, or all the other, and you have a recipe for tyranny. Yeah, as a, as a designer for computer code, I feel that's an imperfect solution. At one point, we should have an AI that, that will be able to tell us what is the right way. But that obviously is very scary, right? That, runs, that, that sounds like the one world government. That sounds like something where we outsource our decision making to an AI. But we are looking at, a, at, a, at something that, at least in a country like ours, that it allows for slightly more liberty. We're looking at an enormous amount of domestic strife, of, 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 of conflict and, and time wasted, right? I feel oh, when, I, when I go around San Francisco, but, but I can go around most of the country, I feel people are using a tiny percentage of their potential, of their actual potential. What they do is they're, they're not necessarily caught in emotions, but a lot of these distractions that we have and debates that we have on Twitter and, and, and in TV, they're never about the real issues. They're never, as you said earlier, they, they fall very short of solutions. Right? They pinpoint a, a certain particular issue that seems to be arousing emotions. And then millions of people are affected by that in a positive or neg negative way, often in a more negative way, seemingly because that sells better. And we waste so much time and resources from all these smart people, 350 million people they've been in the US, who all should have that debate to an extent, right? In an open debate and should come up with their solutions. And this is rarely being done. I feel like we're wasting a bit of the resources that this great country and all the countries in the world, but especially the US has to offer because seemingly this, maybe this goes in cycles. And I experienced that in Europe a lot that people are very interested in certain federal um, national politics, but they're completely uninterested on a local level. They've never, they don't even know their mayor. They've never heard of him. Really odd to me. So there seems to be this attraction right now also to certain federal politics, how we design this country in a better way, but nobody cares about what's going on like in my city, San Francisco, which is not a very livable city to say the least. Well, I think There's a lot of truth to what, what you've just said. I mean, Tokyo found the, uh, you might say, the seedbed of American democracy in local, local forms of government. And yet, government has become increasingly federalized or nationalized. Uh, we don't really know what's going on at the local level. And um, we rather, we rather think that any changes that are going to happen will have to come from above and, and, not, and not from below. And we've sort of lost uh, touch with that. You, you talk about your city of San Francisco. I mean, if, if you look at, if you read the New York Times, for example, which I get every morning, 
There's very, very little in the New York Times about New York, uh, at least New York City, local news. It doesn't cover, you know, it doesn't really cover local news to a great degree. It covers national news, international news, sports, other things. But if you want to know what's going on in New York City, you have to, you have to buy another paper. Uh, the elite uh, magazines, the elite opinion really looks not at the local level, but at the national and increasingly the international thing as a story. Is you know, we've lost we've lost touch with we've lost touch with our localist roots, which Tocqueville thought were were central for democracy. Do you feel that might be a problem of representative versus direct democracy? It's something that Rousseau, Rousseau really advocates for is direct democracy, which seems to work very well in Switzerland, one of the very few countries where it actually works. And we have fallen out a little bit with the representation that we get because we, we these, most of these campaigns, and that's a very cynical argument, they're driven by money primarily. They are driven by but really shortcutted emotions on social media and then we elect these representatives and they obviously might do something completely different. So we, we, we are not really aware what, what kind of their, their mode of thinking is before we elect them because the, the message that we have is too short. We, we, that, that is obviously changing, but when you think of TV ads and social media ads, there isn't a lot of content in there. And then once they go to DC, we feel, they, they're really going along party lines and they're being hijacked by the same political themes that we see on social media and they don't really allow for a lot of decision making. And are we fed up with, with this representative democracy and maybe we need some more direct democracy because we feel we have a voice? Well, I think, yeah, I think in part, yes. Um, I mean, one thing you mentioned Rousseau again, I'm glad you did. Uh, one of the things that's important to remember for about Rousseau is he thought he wasn't very much in favor of direct democracy. But direct democracy for him required at least two things. It required small scale, not going to work, he, he understood, in a, in a large, much less a vast country. It required, as we talked about earlier, a pretty sizable degree of social and economic equality couldn't extend great, great differences. Direct democracy is not possible in a world where there's great differences of wealth. But sort of also, the other thing it seems to require for Rousseau is there's a, it requires a kind of cultural and ethnic homogeneity. It requires people with basically similar what we would call similar values, similar religions, similar outlooks. Uh, when Madison and Hamilton began thinking about things, they well, they were they were legislating first for what was a sprawling, large society. It was, would be a society with a variety of interests, which is to say, for him, different degrees of wealth. And it would be a pluralist society. It was not going to be just of a, you know, he, he understood or they understood what would eventually become that our societies are far more pluralistic than the ones that Rousseau had, ima had imagined. 
So in such a society, it doesn't appear, it appeared for them at least, it appeared that representation, representative government was the, was the, was the thing that you needed. And today I think you're right. Uh, there is a question how well representative, representative democracies are, are working. I, I, have a, I have a colleague uh, whose new book I've just been reading, Elaine Landemore. Uh, she's a book called Open Democracy which is an attempt to rethink the theory of representation and sort of based on an experiment that took place in Iceland uh, with their constitutional, uh, when, they, when they went to reform their constitution, they went to kinds of what kind of uh, the, these, these uh, experiments with citizen participation, what they call mini publics, I think that was the term. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think represent, representative government is is in a bit of a bind today. Uh, it seems sclerotic. If you look at if you look at the two parties, if you look at the way Washington functions, uh, it seems very, very entrenched and sclerotic. I suspect something like that was what led a lot of perhaps well-meaning people in 2012, or 2016, rather, to vote for Donald Trump, because they thought he would shake things up. He would, he would be an agent of change, and he would bring something different. I, I, I understand the sentiment, although I disagree with, you know, with the, what they thought was the answer to it. But I do think our ordinary systems of representation uh, are, are in some, are in some serious degree of, I would say, kind of crisis of confidence, whether, whether they can deliver. And the depressing part of it, from my point of view, is people, many people are increasingly turning to authoritarian models, like, like the Chinese model, as an alternative to representative democracies, because they think, um, simply because they think they are more efficient uh, the French poet and philosopher around the First World War, Charles Peguy, uh, said, tyranny is always better organized than freedom. And yeah. he, had a point. he had a point. Uh, tyranny seems better organized. Maybe I would say tyranny seems better organized than freedom. And it's what lead pe leads people to despair of their own freedom and look for salvation in these large authoritarian movements and countries. Um, that's, that's what I think we're seeing to some, to some degree in the West, not just in the US, but throughout the West. I've been talking to George Dyson and we talked about the history of technology. And we also incidentally talked about what happened in World War II and World War I. And one thing that we, we debated about was there was this rapid, seemingly to, to the minds of people, we would look at it extremely slow, but to the minds of people at the time, there was this enormous increase in the speed of change, the speed of innovation. There was a ton of innovations in the early 20th century that were groundbreaking that changed how we see the world and also how we experience the world, not just the automobile, the the the, the, the experience of flight, um, so many chemicals that are, were able to um, 
to synthesize, we were able to synthesize the energy, the price of energy dropped so much. And maybe the reaction of people, especially in Europe, that suddenly saw these innovations, kind of what we see right now, where we also feel this, this, this uptick in the speed of progress, at least in certain areas, not, not everywhere, but that's another problem, is that democracies are always quite a bit behind, right? They are always a debate club. They are always years behind before the real issue actually has passed. And then they start debating and they can't make up their mind until it's almost too late and then they usually more or less get it right with a couple of different trials. I think that's, this is the way democracy is run. And people are looking to these authoritarian ideas. And, and as you say, the, the tyrants are more organized because they only have one simple worldview, but they get their act together pretty quickly usually. And maybe this is what people are missing is that there is all this speed of technology that seems to change the way they see reality. And maybe, I think we talked about that last time is that people are going into this cloudified world. They're retreating from the real world very strongly and they, they, with or without COVID. And because they do, they feel this representative democracy that has served us so well, it's just so slow. It's just so many years behind. So why don't we try something more aggressive? I think this is what, what, what is kind of this gut feeling that people have had over the last couple of years. Well, your, your statement that democracy lags behind, I think, is, is very true in, in, many, in many respects. It certainly lags, but it, it, seems, it seems slow in comparison, especially to the, to the speed with which science, technology, the internet, uh, these, these kinds of development, these kinds of uh, activities progress and, and, and improve. Um, and yet, um, I think about democracy uh, to some degree in the way that in what, what Churchill said about America. He said, America can always be counted on to do the right thing after every other alternative has been tried. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think that's very true about democracy as well. Can, democracy will, will do the right thing after every other alternative has, has been tried. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of a believer in that, in, in, in that, in that view. Uh, but I, I think the emphasis should be on do the right thing. I, 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 do, have, I do have perhaps uh, an un... I've talked earlier, I mentioned earlier about realism and discovery, but I do have sort of, in many ways, an unrealistic faith in democracy. I think in the long run, uh, I'm, I put my, I put, I put my, my chips on the democratic uh, number rather than the authoritarian number. Oh, I'm, I'm with you. I feel like democracies, A, don't have enough competition right now. If you think about 100 years ago, there was a ton of competition from authoritarian regimes, right? There were very few democracies. So the pressure is gone because there's democracy everywhere and everyone is slowing down in terms of never-ending debates, it seems, wherever you go in the world. That's why I think we open up this, this window for China because it, in theory, it should never have worked, right? China shouldn't exist, at least not in that current incarnation, and it does. And it, it seems to get more successful by the day, at least from the outside. So I think this is kind of a failure of, of competition because there isn't enough pressure on, on democracies. And maybe there's, there's something else where we feel 
the the democracy is a bit like buying an index fund, right? If we or a mutual fund, it's it's probably going to be okay, but it's really slow, and you you have to wait thirty years. But an authoritarian regime, so to speak, or something that's that's more aggressive, a bit like venture capital. Yes, it does make a lot of errors, but it might produce much higher returns uh, if you can hedge your bets. Obviously, that's tough with the nation state, right? Because we only have one one federal government, but we can think about that with the states, right? So we have 50 different states and some are diverging really far out, which is kind of a venture capital approach. We just go for the most risky thing we can afford to put money in. Well, I do think that's an interesting uh, metaphor that, you know, in many ways, authoritarian regimes are like uh, kind of risky stock, you know, it may go up, it may, may have great returns, uh, but the, da the, the dangers of collapse are also, are also just, just as real. Um, I think there's much to what you say in the question of competition with non-democratic regimes. You know, in, in the years immediately after uh, the Cold War in the early 90s, you know, when it appeared to many people that democracies, that democratic regimes were the only, uh, the only really legitimate kind of regime. You know, we had books like Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History, that market democracies were going to be the only kind of regime. There, there'd be some holdouts, but for the most part, the world is moving in the direction of this kind of market, market liberal democracies. And that was a view, even though Fukuyama's version of it was widely kind of ridiculed, it was nevertheless a view that was in different forms, was, was widely held that uh, uh, the old authoritarianisms of the 20th century were no longer viable. But the two great alternatives, communism and fascism, had been defeated, and that uh, there was no real viable alternative. Uh, there were these kind of maybe Middle Eastern holdouts, but they, they tended to be sort of on the margins and they weren't all that, they didn't really hold out an attractive and plausible alternative to, again, market, market democracies of the West. And of course, the last 20 years or so has shown us just exactly how uh, utopian that, that way of thinking was. I mean, that idea on the morning of 9-11 uh, realized that there was a serious alternative to, you know, Western-style democracies and in the form of these uh, Middle Eastern caliphates and other other forms of, I'd say, theological politics that existed uh, throughout throughout the Middle East and the, the Near East, and then of course more recently with the rise of China and the reemergence of authoritarian. Uh, what, what are called illiberal democracies in countries like, you know, small countries, maybe like Hungary and Poland, but also big countries like India, Modi. Again, nationalism is very much on the table. We see we're living in a moment now where 20 years ago, the belief was that liberal democracies and market democracies was the only game in town. Now we're beginning to see how fragile uh, democracies really are when confronted with these powerful authoritarian and nationalist and theological alternatives. So I think at the moment we're living in a, in a moment where there's plenty of competitions, plenty of competition for democracies, 
And the question is, will will we rise? Will we rise to? Will we rise to this as we as we have done in the past? Uh, it's a, it's a it's an open question. I mean, I'm I, I, I want to be optimistic about this, but I'm not. Uh, I, I, I'm but but uh, I, I would be foolish to say that it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, we'll we'll have to see what happens, and it will very much depend on the quality of leadership and enlightenment that different that the United States in particular, but other countries bring bring to the table. I think I learned that from you. Either Aristotle or Machiavelli. You have to help me with who it really is, or maybe they did it both. They compared each political regime without any real notion which one is their favorite. Um, they had the monarchy, they had authoritarian um, regimes, and they had democracies, and they kind of felt each of them was a tool for certain kinds of jobs. They didn't really build a hierarchy of what is best or what is worst. Right. No, that's true. There was a, a great uh, sense of the comparative, in many ways, the comparative study of, of, of regimes. And, uh, you know, one of the people who sort of began to uh, turn away from that a bit, actually, was Tocqueville uh, in, the pre in, the, excuse me, in the introduction to democracy in America. He has one sent a, a one sentence paragraph that is very captivating. He said, "We need a new political science for a world itself quite new." And he didn't say exactly what he meant by that. We need a new political science for a new world. What is that new political science, and what is that new world? The way I interpret that sentence is that the political science of the new world or of a new world will be this, will be increasingly the science of democracy. Tocqueville thought there were historical kind of tendencies, there was a kind of historical movement in the direction of greater equality and greater democracy. At least, I mean, he was thinking of America and, and in France and probably West, West, probably Western Europe. I don't know. He was if he was thinking much beyond that, but he he thought that the that the that the political science of the future would increasingly be the study of democracy. Uh, to a large extent, he he's been right uh, about that. But now I think we're seeing the limits of that idea and with the rise of different, again, alternatives, the China model, different kinds of what we think of as the illiberal democracies coming especially from Eastern Europe and elsewhere, we, we're confronted with a, with a very different kind of situation than the one that Tocqueville might have imagined as the future. Yeah, I grew up in the part of Eastern Germany, in a part of Europe, where the, the whole population was kind of accustomed to a major revolution every 40 to 50 years. And I know when you go further east, these things are even more common. I mean, we, it's often like in Kyrgyzstan every seven years, for whatever reason, for every seven years they had a major revolution and a couple of people were shot, including the president. And then he moved on and did the same thing again seven years later. In Europe, there seems to be that idea for the longest time that this was part of 
improving themselves, the part of the betterment that you select the system, you, you, you put your chips on the table, you live with it, and then you drop it after a certain time frame. Usually it's about a generation or half a generation. That doesn't seem to be the case in the U.S. where we have this huge continuity that made us rich, right? Because we, we kept all the investments and we never had to put them to zero. That's what usually happens in a, in a revolution, not just that we start from scratch in terms of politics and also in terms of property. Um, it's not always the case, but that's often the case or was the case in Europe. I think that's been an enormous success in the U.S. Well, why do you think is the U.S. so resilient? So we, we never had this overthrow throwing of the government, which is kind of, was kind of common for the longest time in Europe. It wasn't the last 70 years, which is the exception, but before it happened all the time. Why do you think, is, is that the constitution? Is that something where, and this is maybe because we are patriots and we all believe too much and we are too attached to America, but what makes America so special? And maybe it's something that we can teach around the world. It's wonderful question and observation and of course the one um the, the one um the, the one fact that uh in a way resists that of course is the, is the massive fact of the civil war that happened you know in the 1860s where not exactly half the country but a, a large you know about a third of the country decided to reject the result of a popular election and to attempt to secede and form a slave-holding republic in the South. Um, in many ways, an event that has a lot of parallels to what happened on January 6th. Uh, the people on January 6th often said they were reviving the spirit of 1776. Uh, I. I dispute that. Uh, they were reviving the spirit of 1860 when Confederates uh, in the South rejected the result of an election and decided to overturn it by seceding. That, that was that's was what we saw. But on the most part, you're right. Uh, ours has been a fairly continuous tradition, although there was a debate about that early on. Uh, Jefferson, to take one example, famously said that no constitution, that the, that the dead cannot bind the living, and that no constitution should exist beyond a generation, which he thought of as 19 years. So that every 19 years, there should, there should be some kind of referendum on the constitution, or maybe even a, a new constitutional convention called, because why should the past have claims on the, on the present or the, or the future. And that was debated uh, in the Federalist Papers. They considered it, you know, they considered this. And for various reasons, uh, sort of that I agree with, I have to say, they rejected Jefferson's view. In many ways, from the standpoint of the need of continuity and the needs for um, stability and continuity, which are, are genuine needs. But also the people have a kind of, this, this kind of gets me back to my, my theme of patriotism from the beginning. People, people have a need for reverence too, reverence for the past. 
there's something exhilarating about Jefferson's view, in a way. Why should the past bind us? You know, we should make up our own minds about the past. But that, that, that is, in some ways, to condemn us to live in a perpetual present. We have a need also, I think, for reverence. Uh, I talked earlier about gratitude, about making, making us who we are, the, the past, our constitutional traditions that have made us who we are. It doesn't mean we are slaves of the past or slaves to tradition. We're always free to improvise and to improve. But I think that's one of the things that distinguishes the American case from what you were describing, is we've sort of tried to achieve some kind of balance between the, the need to adapt, always to adapt and improve as the situation demands, but also not, not forgetting where we came from, not forgetting our heritage, not forgetting our beginning points, our roots, our, our framer, the framers who, who shaped it, a kind of reverence, for gratitude and reverence for the past. And I think American patriotism is kind of a balance of, of those two, of a sense of reverence, as well as a sense of possibilities and progress and, <clears throat> and aspiration. And it's a kind of ability to hold those two those two things together that I think we find the kind of pull, pull the right the right balance the right mix yeah one one thing that Jim Rudd put forward when I asked him a similar question he said you know what America has gotten really lucky because there was never a state religion at least not officially so religion always competed and because of that competition we have the most interesting religion on the planet religious subgroups and they outcompete in, in just because they're, they make it interesting, they make it entertaining. Um, and there's always a split off that comes up with a new idea. Might that be the Mormons? Might that be um, the Pentecostal church? There's always someone who, who draws in the crowds. And that just hasn't happened in Europe for hundreds of years. Basically, since the Reformation, there was no progress. It's little progress, but not in a major scale progress in terms of how these religions evolved over time. And what people have been saying is that since the... 18th century probably the 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 ability to be steeply involved deeply involved with religion has withdrawn quite a bit in europe uh, much more than in the united states 19th and 20th century because our, we had so much more interesting religions and when you spin this further again that's a hypothesis is that so people became less guided by judeo-christian heritage or any heritage that came out of a religion might that be islam might that be hinduism or something else so the they, they broke with religion even though the churches are all still around it's not that the buildings are not there but the, the the way how people are guided in their daily life and their friends by religion and when we go further maybe that's the reason why why people are very ready to take bigger risks to 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 install paradigms that were completely alien to what Judeo-Christian heritage would tell us when I say this is more closely to the U.S. Constitution. And we see this in Germany, right? We have so many ideas that took off in Germany in relatively short order that were complete opposites. So we had the Weimar Republic, which was extremely liberal, right? extremely 
set on progress and it, it, it stood on the on the destruction of the first world war but also on the all the, the, the scientific discoveries in the early 20th century which which really improved gdp and then they kind of invented nazism and even worse they implemented it even as a theory is probably around before but it it was implemented in an extremely destructive way and scale and then just later on we see the the, the frankfurt school with ardorno and we see a new incorporation of socialism. Maybe it is the, pro the core root of a lot of these things is that people have fallen out with their relationship with God and they're reinstalling a certain God. And then they take, as more further away they are from God, as more, as more risk-taking they are, which in certain sense is probably good because it, it, it has a short-term optimization, but as a long-term optimization, it's probably not such a great idea. If you talk about what happened in the 20th century in Europe with two very destructive world wars. Right. And, uh, Would you share this, or do you think that's, that's, that's too, too far from the truth? No, I, I share some of it. I, I would maybe frame it a bit differently. Let me just put it, put it in my own, my own terms. I, I think in many ways, uh, Germany, if we, if we go back to the late 18th, early 19th century, Germany was always in a way the stepchild of Western Europe. It was always sort of aware that it was behind, what they thought of as behind the revolutionary movements, especially in France, but in England. And as a consequence, German philosophers in the 19th century in particular developed philosophies that set themselves largely in opposition to what they thought of as the bourgeois West, embodied in commerce, embodied, embodied in representative government, embodied in all of the institutions that, you know, modernity had, modern science. Um, German philosophers, Marx, Nietzsche, Heidegger, the Frankfurt School you mentioned, uh, developed uh, philosophies largely as a kind of response to and in opposition to the uh, kind of movement of the of the liberal the liberal West, and this produced in many ways some extraordinarily rich and and and, and powerful theories and philosophies. And yet, at the same time, we saw how those philosophies became translated into practice in many ways in the form of fascism and communism. Uh, there, were, there were exceptions, obviously. You know, Kant was a great, you know, the great advocate of the Enlightenment and liberal, liberal internationalism, Kant. Uh, Hegel, who was a great uh, advocate of a kind of... Um, constitutional welfare state in many ways, I'm uh, Hegel, but as the, as the 19th century wore on, German philosophy increasingly took an anti-liberal turn. And Nietzsche clearly was the dominant, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche was, was the dominant voice, was the dominant voice here. He just dominated the, the philosophical world of the late 19th, 20th, 20th centuries that everybody had to had to respond to and in many ways had to incorporate. 
And uh, I think a lot of German thought today is uh, when we think of, you know, the most famous contemporary, contemporary German philosopher, Jürgen Habermas. Habermas has tried to recapture the more the Kantian Enlightenment con conception of German philosophy. He's turned against or very much turned away from the uh, radicalism of, of the earlier forms of critical theory and Marxism. And uh, I, I admire him for that. I, I admire Habermas for that, I have to say. Uh, I think he uh, provides an admirable, an admirable model. But the, but the German case is a fascinating one. I mean, uh, we can never get enough German philosophy. It's just, uh, you know, it's... It's, it's the land where philosophy seems to have most fully developed all, 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 of, the, all of its potentialities. Yeah, when you, when I say this a lot, when I go back to Europe and you, you literally sit in a random uh, part of a plane or a train or take a bus, you can always stir up a conversation about philosophy right away. Everyone will have an opinion, more sophisticated or not, right? Um, but they will have an opinion. They have, they, they will tell you about it if if you if you ask honestly, which is I feel quite amazing. Um, and there is this this desire in Germany, and I think this is also true in other countries. Maybe Japan is another example of this, where there is a desire to not look into all the problems in the world, we call it the big picture. It's, it's a desire to look into a subset of problems, solve those and, you know, understand them perfectly until they are fully solved and then move them up later on to solve the big picture, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of, we reduce, we reduce variables in an equation. And when you fully solve parts of that equation, you go back to the main equation. But that somehow never happens in some of these countries, like in Germany, right? So it, it becomes lost in the conversation that there's more out there, that we are looking at a small subset. Mm -hmm. And whatever perfect solution was found is being used as a model in lots of places have nothing to do with the original problem. And that's, that's a very strange shortcutting in, in general German society, right? We, we see this in, in also in, when we look at innovation and other places of, of, of thought and intellectual freedom. And we see this in Japan too. It's, it's an odd way to see the world. And I, when it would, I can't really explain where it comes from. It's very different than the French view of the world, right? Which is, it, it's, it's kind of carving out the best way, as you said earlier, to, to create equality and to, to, to create a brotherhood, and at least in spirit, maybe not in practice, but at least find the joie vivre way for everyone in society. And I think German, Germany and France are complete opposites there. And I wonder if you ever thought about how these school of thoughts or these just mental models of the world, how they develop, and then they become very persistent. I mean, this has been going on in Germany for hundreds of years, and it seems to not die out. Well, um, I think that, um, again, I'll just sort of repeat one of, the, one of the things I said, maybe in a slightly different way. I think uh, what we think of as the Enlightenment, and therefore what we think of as modernity was slower in coming to Germany than it was in countries like France and England. Yeah. 
And for many German intellectuals of that period, uh, they felt they felt in some ways correctly that Germany was backward. It was um, it was always in many ways. Um, yeah, it, 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 that, it, that, it, that it had failed to achieve what this created, this created, uh, I think, resentment. And it, it created philosophies that in many ways set themselves in conscious opposition to the French model. The French model thought of itself as universal, clearly thought of itself as universalist. Uh, what did the French Revolution stand for? The rights of man and the citizen. What did Napoleon attempt to do? He attempted to universalize, to export these revolutionary ideas through, with armies and with guns. And so there was obvious back, backlash to this and resent, resentment of it and resistance to it. And the German, German philosophy, I think, German way looking at looking at things often developed. That, that's why, in many ways, nationalisms developed in Germany is in opposition to the kind of universalism represented by the French revolutionary doctrine of the rights of man. Uh, of course, always led by France. They were universal so long as France was was on the top in a, in a certain way. And uh, it is this. You're right. There is this. There was. There was this. Uh, you know, two centuries or longer conflict between France and Germany, and what these two very different models of, of, of what they of, of what each what each each represented. Yeah. So nationalism is, in that sense, kind of a defense mechanism, like a mechanism, like an immune system that comes up and kind of fights new ideas and we, we just go back to the basics and we go back to the national state and everything else we kind of we forget about? Is, is that how we could think of nationalism? Right, except that, you know, at this time, you know, I'm speaking of the early 19th century, Germany wasn't a state. It was, you know, it was a bunch of different principalities. It was uh, when Fichte gave his famous lectures, uh, what was it called, Lectures in the German Nation, I think, in Berlin in 1807 and 8. Uh, they were exercises in nation building, how to create a, a German state, a, a German nation from this, uh, from these kind of medieval principalities and in, in, in duchies and dukedoms. So the Germans had to first create a state before they could create, you know, a people in, in, in a certain way. And that was the that was the great German project of the nineteen of the nineteenth century, creating the state, Bismarck, uh, and it, um, and I think in many ways that was always seen as a project in opposition in opposition once again to the, to the Enlightenment model, to the to the French model, the rights of man and the, and the citizen, were creating a, a very different kind of state. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of thought that was being spent on the um, on what happened between the first and second world war with the big powers of Europe, right? So, the, as you just said, the nation building was done, and then that everyone was kind of 
joyful in the beginnings of the, the first world where people were looking forward to it. Um, pretty much all of the participants and all of the countries, and I think this goes down to citizens, that changed pretty quickly once the big um, slaughter in, in, in France and in, in Belgium uh, came to, into the public's eye. But something strange must have happened in that generation. I don't know if you ever looked into this between the First and Second World War. There seems to be this, this horror, this, this, this much stronger tolerance for violence, this, this, this almost... And we see this with the Treaty of Versailles, and we see this later on with what happened in Germany, this kind of a revenge project of the, the Second World War, obviously driven by this extremely nationalist idea. But have you ever looked into psychology to people who survived World War One, maybe by being part of it or by just seeing it by, by hearsay, and how this reflected into World War II? There seems to be something really dark going on in Europe. That was, the Americans were unaffected by this. Well, sure, of course. Well, throughout in the, in the 1920s, um, there was a whole uh, segment of the German intelligentsia uh, who were deeply resentful of the Versailles Treaty, who saw it simply as a form of winner's justice, imposing harsh terms on the, on the loser. And maybe that view became most famously articulated by a German uh, jurist and legal philosopher named Carl Schmidt, who I talk also a little bit about in my book. Because Schmidt took the view that politics was about distinguishing the friend from the enemy. This was the basic existential term of distinction around which what he called the political, das Politische, turned. The ability to identify the enemy, the enemy from without and the enemy from within. And you're right, that took a very that took a violent turn. Uh, Schmidt rejected appeals of international human rights, of humanitarianism. All of these ideas, he thought, were just disguised forms of domination. And that the real distinction was between being able to isolate the enemy, the existential enemy. Uh, his book was somewhat abstract in the sense that it didn't it didn't he himself didn't identify a, any specific enemy but it didn't take long of course before those who followed him began to to do just that they began to see jews they began to see communists they began to see liberals they began to see all of these people as enemy as enemies of the state and of course the next step of course was was the, the extermination. So this became, you know, a deeply ingrained, you know, uh, problem in German in German thought in the in the twenties in the twenties and thirties. We still struggle. Yeah. We still struggle with the legacy of the Schmidtianism, and I think it's returning with the, with the new nationalism today. Is really rediscovered. Rediscovering the 
claims of Schmidt about about enemies. Look at the way we 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 talk we talk about. I mean, every 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 society needs a immigration policy. Every I, I believe in borders and immigrate in immigration policy. I don't believe in open borders. But listen to the way in which many people talk about immigrants, the dehumanizing language in which in which they're described. Uh, enemies, they're, they're coming to pollute us, they're coming to, you know, there are hordes, this, this dehumanizing language. It comes right out of this kind of Schmidtian doctrine of, 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 of existential enemies. And what I, what I, my book on patriotism is very much uh, opposed to. Yeah, it's, we have this notion of seeing of describing the other side as something dark, right? So it's 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 especially happening on Twitter. Steven? Yes, I'm here. Oh, okay. And and we see how how this works, right? So we we see this is picked up by the algorithms, and in, in in turn, it's being picked up by 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 an emotional brain of ours. So it seems to be almost like a natural response that we have. To, to problems when they arise, we, 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 we go back to these default algorithms, maybe from a limbic brain or from an older brain structure that, that make us comfortable and make the world explainable again to us. Because I think for a lot of people today, the world is just not fully explained. It's really complicated. It's changing so quick. Nobody can, can, can keep up with this fire hose of Twitter. Um, even if you spend 24 hours of, of reading just the most important things, you're overwhelmed by it. And it's easy to trigger this return to comfort, this return to, okay, this strategy worked, I don't know, 10,000 years ago when we were all tribes, right? Living as hunters and gatherers or 20,000 years ago before we really had civilization. And it's easy to trigger this defense mechanism. I actually think when I, I'm curious, I didn't think we would want to talk about this, but I think this is a, a wonderful policy suggestion is to bring in 750 million, 650 million um, new immigrants to the U.S. And Matthew Iglesias had this idea that we, we, we bring America to 1 billion, um, Im not immigrants, but citizens by bringing in mostly immigrants from pretty much anywhere in the world. Whoever wants to come, there's certain restrictions and certain rules, but generally we, we kind of reinvigorate the spirit of the early 20th century. And what I thought is, with given what happened to America, the question is, do you feel we don't just need an immigration policy? We need like like something that supports the the rebuilding of America with such an amount of immigration. If if we can make this happen politically, and then on the on the second notice, there is so much so much competition for talented immigrants out there. Do you feel? And since it was always a problem uh, since day one where most talented people would go. Was that always an, a thought when people thought about political regimes and not just you know, secure the status quo and not make people kill each other, but also to bring as many talented people into the society they were building? I think that's in fact the exception rather than the rule. For the most part, societies have been fairly homogeneous. They have you know, medieval cities had walls around them themselves uh, to keep people out, not to invite people in. Uh, America was, we have a, 
you know, this story of American immigration policy is, is a complicated and not always a, a pretty one. But for, for the most part, America, is, as we all know, is, is an immigrant society. Uh, it has been built by progressive wa waves of immigrants who have come here and modified the country, changed it, and, 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 it, and it, while adapting to it at the, at the same time. Uh, but I think we're the exception in certain, in certain respects. When you look at the way in which, I mean, Europe uh, today has handled the waves of kind of recent immigration that, that's come, mainly from Africa in the Middle East, uh, it's not been a very happy picture. Uh, why? Because the, these have not been traditionally immigrant societies. Immigration to them is, is relatively un, is relatively rare. Has been until recently, and now they're struggling with uh, how how to respond. We, we see the debates going on, particularly I've been following in France, the debates over pluralism and, and laicite, and whether or not this model, famous French model of laicite, still works uh, today with a, with the world of a, of a large large Muslim population that feels very disenfranchised from the uh, mainstream. Uh, so I think it's the exception rather than, uh, look, look at China with the way in which it treats its, its ethnic minorities. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's criminal. Uh, it's criminal, the ethnic cleansing that is going on in China today with the Uyghurs and the, the various ethnic minorities. So I think societies based on immigration and well is are very are far more the exception rather rather than rather than the rule, and even even the U.S. immigration policy is is clearly something we it goes up and down in, in terms of how we how we have accepted new new, new waves of immigrants. I think the idea of bringing in 650 million new immigrants is not such a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I thought so the same initially, but I kind of like the plan by now. And I, Can I ask I always, who, who argued for this? Matthew Iglesias. He, Matthew. he does foreign policy. Right, okay. Yes, yes, okay. But he's also a journalist. Um, I don't think it's, it's a serious proposal yet. Who knows what, what's going to happen. The... And obviously, then we, we need to attach rules to this. But I really like that part of the Old Testament the, the most, right? When you, when you think about Exodus, it was a very diverse group of people. It was obviously restricted by a certain belief, right? A belief in God, and they had to prove that. And then, you know, obviously they failed, and then eventually they got it right. But if we institute a certain set of covenants, and obviously I feel this is this is really superbly hard political task to solve how to basically create a new state within a new within the existing state obviously they want to they, it shouldn't be separate states what i'm what i'm saying is how do we get 650 million just as a thought experiment very motivated individuals to believe into and to merge with the values that we already have granted we might have to change a couple of values too but this is kind of what we talked about earlier. We get the chance to, to redesign America completely because suddenly these 650 million, obviously they, they will be the majority, right? So whoever 
lives here now is the minority. So we, we can do this grand experiment everyone dreams of as a, as a philosopher and as a political scientist. Maybe we get to do this with this kind of plan. Well, um, thankfully, Matthew Iglesias is not going to have his wish fulfilled with an immigration policy letting 650 million new people in, which would be, you know, for all kinds of purposes, kind of uh, impossible. But you go back to the question that I, I think is very central. How do, you, how do you get people to believe in a kind of common creed and a common purpose? It's, it's, lar it's largely through education. It's through, what they're, it's, it's through, it's through teaching and what they're, what they're taught to believe in schools and high schools and co colleges. And I think we are not doing a very good job at that at the moment, uh, teaching people about the the what I'll call the American creed, uh, which, you know, the principles of the founding of the Constitution of our of our constitutional beginnings and principles. This is this is what we need. This is what we need more of. If if we are going to have a a people, what what are we in the United States? What what makes a people? Uh, in unlike, you might say, unlike countries of the old world where people have lived there for generations, if not centuries, where there's, you could say, land and soil as the basis of the nation and of patriotism. Or unlike, you mentioned, you mentioned the Old Testament, unlike Israel, which can be claimed to be based on divine promises and, you know, and, 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 holy texts. Uh, the United States doesn't have those. Uh, but what we do have, or what we might have, is a set of shared ideas and beliefs that derive from a constitutional heritage. And if we don't have that, uh, then we don't have anything else. We don't have anything to replace that with. And so that's why I feel it is so important that, the, that these principles be taught and be, you know, be, be studied in schools, and they form the basis of our of our of our common heritage and our and our patriotism. Yeah, I feel you do a wonderful part of this with your lectures. I think they are instrumental to learning about that society you live in. I always feel schools are not really the best place because. Frankly, when I was that age, I had no clue. I, that, you could, you, I could listen to all your lectures and forget about them in a month just because I didn't have the mind for it. I didn't have the life experience. I didn't have the, the possibility to possibly see what it all means. And probably other people have the same problem. And we would have to delay this maybe until their 30s and their 40s, early 40s even, but then, you know, this ship is stale. People have a job to do. They have a family to feed. At least that's how it used to be. So I don't know if this is, can be solved. And I know the old Greeks envisioned that idea that we all become philosophers at a certain age. I don't know if there is a solution like that, because generally people now need more and more time to be productive parts of society. So maybe they should become philosophers first and then take a job in their 40 or 50, because the job market is not that great for a lot of people in their 20s and 30s right now. At least well, not for something that looks like a career. I, 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 was, I felt the same way you did as a, as a 
school kid, school student growing up. I mean, I didn't, you know, I wasn't really taught in school, uh, you know, the, the sorts of things I'm, I'm speaking about. But, but I'm not, on the other hand, I'm not requiring, on, on my view, everyone to be a philosopher. That would be, that would be impossible. I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't need to have a nation of philosophers. But what we do, what we, what we do require, I think, or what we do need is people with some who have a, some appreciation and gratitude, once again, for the basic core principles and core values of the American experience. And that's a question of, of, of some history, of some political theory. And of course, some literature and the way people are, are taught this. And again, it doesn't require us to be, be a nation of philosophers, but it does require, I think, a greater attention to our core, core principles and values. Yeah. And maybe I can, Well, maybe that's I can a perfect uh, way to end this, probably. <laughs> um, thanks. thanks so much for coming on again, Stephen. That was awesome. Um, again, I learned so much. I really appreciate your time. You're an amazing interviewer. You ask, you ask great questions, and you have a way of getting right to the core of, of issues, which is very, very, very important. So thank you for saying this. I'm honored. I'm honored. humbled. Okay. Uh, all the best, Stephen. Talk soon. Talk soon. Be well. Bye bye.